0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: The UK is making rapid progress in rolling out coronavirus vaccines, but concerns are rife that too many people aren't strictly following the lockdown rules.
2: A minority of people are putting the health of the nation at risk by not following the rules. The rules are clear, and in terms of police enforcement, you know, we've spoken at length as to the type of egregious breaches that we will clamp down on, so the rules are clear.
1: Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be looking at the latest COVID-19 developments, the concerns about people following the rules, as you heard from Home Secretary Priti Patel there, the efforts to roll out the vaccine, and the start of another debate about when and how to lift lockdown. Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard and Political Correspondent Jasmine Cameron-Sheleshi will explain. And later, we'll be examining whether moving civil servants out of Whitehall is a good idea. The Johnson government wants to post thousands of officials out by the end of the decade, but where will they go and will it help with the levelling up agenda? Our North of England correspondent Andy Bounds will be discussing with special guest Jill Rutter from the Institute of Government Think Tank and herself, a former civil servant. Jim and Jasmine, welcome back. Hello.
3: Hi. Hi.
1: So this is the third lockdown, and this is one where I think we've all been universally working from home that during the second lockdown and the various restrictions, we've been popping in and out of Parliament. Jim, I think this is the first time where we've been doing all political reporting virtually for some time.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's the first time since last spring, isn't it? And the sun is no longer shining we don't have the novelty value that that was in the last spring, not to be too glib, but I suppose it was an exciting time as a news journalist, even as it was also appalling in equal measure. At this time, it feels more like a slog working from home and it feels slightly bleak, doesn't it? But on the upside, you know, we all know it's essential and we all know that the sun will start to shine in a few months time in, in more ways than one. Well, we can take a little bit of hope that the days appear to be getting a little bit longer and it's no longer
1: completely pitch black at 10 past four in the afternoon. Jasmine, how have you found this lockdown compared to the previous ones that obviously reporting is a little bit more difficult?
5: Yeah, and I have to say, I definitely agree with Jim. The novelty of lockdown has certainly worn off a bit during the first lockdown. I actually quite enjoyed working from home and being away from the office a little bit. I got into a really good schedule of doing yoga in the mornings, having smoothies. It was quite a wholesome existence, albeit trying to report on this crazy pandemic from my spare room. But this time around, I think the weather has definitely had such an impact and it's a bit harder to stay cheerful. But I am encouraged by the news on vaccines and a couple of relatives of mine have already been vaccinated. So that's given me a bit of hope that there is light at the end of the tunnel.
1: Well, that is a positive note to take us into the main topic of the week. The coronavirus picture is markedly split at the moment. On the one hand, deaths have risen to a dreadful 1,200 a day and the NHS remains under the most terrific strain. But the seven-day average for infections appears to be slowly dropping, despite concerns the lockdown measures aren't being fully adhered to. But the overwhelming good news is that the vaccine rollout appears to be going to plan. The government is on track to hitting its 300,000 jabs a day target, with hopes rising it could go as high as even half a million. Vaccine Minister Nadeem Sahari, however, has warned the full impact of vaccinations won't be clear for some time.
3: We are here today uh, with 2.4 million Uh, doses administered and rising. However, uh, Mr Speaker, the full impact of COVID-19 vaccinations on infection rates will not be clear until a larger uh, number of people have been uh, vaccinated.
1: Jim, let's begin with the overall state of the UK's battle with COVID, because some of the scenes and pictures and reporting this week from the NHS are pretty dire. And when I spoke to Jeremy Hunt this week, he said it was 50-50 of whether the NHS would get through the next two to three weeks without having to start rationing care and being on the point of collapse. And it feels as if we are not past the worst of it yet.
4: So I would say that the week began in a very grim way on several levels. So firstly, the number of people getting vaccinated every day seemed very low. We didn't seem to be where we needed to be to hit the government's ambitious target of 14 million older and vulnerable people and essential workers to be vaccinated by mid-February. The infection rate was going through the roof, as well as the death rate and the hospitalisation rate. And there was very serious chatter about new restrictions coming in. We know that ministers on the covid O committee were looking at some quite draconian measures, such as making people wear face masks outside, the housing market being shut down, closing nurseries, now, that picture has changed on several fronts. The level of vaccination daily jabs has gone up to about 250,000. They want to get up to 300,000. It looks like we are getting there. And also, the infection rate has eased off. The R rate seems to be coming down. And therefore, new restrictions are looking less likely. But ministers are not complacent because, as you were saying, said the actual on-the-ground situation in hospitals, particularly in London, Is really quite alarming. We have NHS chiefs making detailed plans to transfer hundreds of critically ill patients from London and the southeast to hospitals as far away as Newcastle. We had Boris Johnson at the liaison committee two days ago suggesting that he didn't know whether ICU units are going to be overwhelmed or not. Just looking at the figures here, one in five major hospital trusts in England had no spare adult critical care beds on January the 10th. So although the infection rate is coming down, that is not the case with the hospitalisation rate and not the case with the death rate because you have this lagging effect where it obviously takes a few weeks before first getting infected the point where you're on a ventilator in a hospital. So reasons to be slightly more positive, but not complacent.
1: So Jasmine, why is there concern in government about people not adhering to the rules at the moment that this is the third lockdown and obviously compliance rate in the first lockdown Last spring was very high. Everything was entirely shut down. The lockdown we had in November was a little bit looser in terms of some of the rules, and it felt as if people were still following it strictly, but maybe not as much as the first one. Is this just a simple fact that people are just exhausted? And how real is that concern? Because you've seen this tough new advertising campaign saying if you go out and meet someone for a coffee, then you could end up killing them. Like, you know, it's very tough stuff we're seeing.
5: Yes, I definitely think there is a real worry within government about compliance. People have been homeschooling for a long period of time. People have been working from home for a long time. And even if new restrictions are put in place, whether it's having to wear masks outside your home, whether it's the 3 meter social distancing rules, there is a genuine fear as to whether people will actually follow these rules. Now, we had Home Secretary Priti Patel saying earlier this week that the police have issued around 45,000 fines to COVID rule breakers. And we've seen a lot of focus on enforcement. As you said, we had a rollout of another advertising campaign aimed at highlighting the risks of seemingly harmless tasks. But the whole situation has got a bit more complicated this week. There was this really bizarre story of Boris Johnson cycling seven miles away from his home, and that was within the rules. And then you had two women fined for being five miles away from their home. And there's all sorts of confusion on the side of the public of, you know, what the rules are and just a sense of weariness about the whole thing.
1: Now, in Scotland, Jim, Nicola Sturgeon has decided to toughen up the rules so they've clamped down on click and collect. And this is the sort of thing that has been discussed in Westminster, the idea that they could even ban people going for exercise or they could close nurseries or they could even get rid of the support and childcare bubbles. The government was quite quick to say that support bubbles will remain. This is where single adults living alone can bubble with another household so they can at least have some interaction with other people. The fact they're discussing these sort of tiny lifelines that remain do suggest they are worried about it. But it does seem to contrast with this picture of improving infection rates.
4: Well, I think one thing we've known all through this crisis is that Nicola Sturgeon has taken a more cautious approach than the central government in London So she has ordered alcohol consumption to be banned outdoors and shops will only be allowed to offer click and collect for essential goods such as clothes, baby equipment and homeware and that kind of thing from this Saturday. And that certainly puts pressure on the London government to follow suit. But I think number 10 sees the threat of these extra restrictions as a measure in itself in that they're trying to send out the message that if you don't abide by the existing curbs and regulations then these are the even tougher restrictions that could come down the track. So I, I think for now, they're holding off. I have to admit, until a week ago, I hadn't even realised that you could kind of order a shirt from a shop and, and go and pick it up. It does seem a little odd that that's continuing. But then, you know, it's always been the case, trying to balance health measures with keeping the economy going and protecting jobs. And it's an extremely hard balance to try and find Jasmine, we should also mention
1: the other sticky situation the government found itself in this week, which was about food parcels. And there's been images circulating on social media from the footballer Marcus Rashford, who, as well as a great player, has emerged as one of the most successful political campaigners we've seen in quite some time. And he called on the government to address some of the absolutely disgraceful images of parcels that were apparently worth £30. And the poverty campaigner, Jack Monroe told the BBC this.
5: It's not just an insult to the people who are receiving it, but it also doesn't take into account that for some children that might be all they get to eat all day. And the £30 could have been spent in a much better way.
1: It's very difficult, Jasmine, for the government to have a complete and total safety net, but this seems to be happening again and again where obvious things that should have been picked up much sooner by officials, by ministers, get traction very quickly and the government has to scrabble to address
5: them. I mean, the images shared online were shocking. I just really felt for the families who received these packages and I couldn't help but thinking there's no choice in the food that you're being offered. You have no real agency over what you're being told you can feed your own children. And the argument that's being put forward by Labor is that actually, as opposed to offering vouchers, there should also be the offer of cash for families and... The Department of Education has actually acted very quickly on this and they've put out statements and they've argued that the images were unacceptable and they're promising to improve the quality of food. It was really striking to me, you know, again, showed the influence of Marcus Rashford, but I think this should have been a problem that could have been easily avoided.
1: Jim, why do you think the government struggles with the safety net aspect of this? Because obviously they've spent terrific sums of money on the furlough scheme, the bounce back loans, the money to self-employed. So that element of it has gone pretty well and the Treasury has been widely praised. But with free school meals, time and time again over the past year, they just seem to have been behind the curve and waited until it's too late before eventually U-turn and accepting whatever proposal Marcus Rashford comes up with.
4: What we haven't explicitly said yet on this podcast is that the reason that they aren't giving families money to choose the food they want to feed their own families with is because they clearly don't trust low-income families to do that. They think that by providing them with food, then they're guaranteeing that food of some sort will reach those children's mouths. Obviously, a lot of people find that offensive. Other people think it's a realistic point of view. If you want a sort of insight into the mindset of the Tory right, and there was a tweet by Darren Grimes, who was a sort of pro-Brexit campaigner a few years ago. He's got a massive social media profile now. And he was tweeting yesterday about how, as a youngster, his family had to visit a food bank. And it was only once. And he'd never forget the shame on his mother's face. He's basically implying that this sort of thing shouldn't have to exist at all. There is a kind of mindset in some conservative or right-wing courses that people should be providing food for their own families with no help from the state at all. And that is obviously a controversial point of view. Now, Jasmine,
1: let's just finish on vaccines where we started here, that we've had these big new vaccination centres opened up and we've had some first signs of data, which appear to be quite positive, with 80% of people over 80 in the northeastern Yorkshire having had their vaccine. It feels as if it's broadly going to plan and the government wants to hit 300,000 jabs a day, but there's been reports it might go even higher to half a million.
5: Yes. So around 3 million people so far have been vaccinated with their first dose. Now, the government has been unclear on how many doses it has and how many deliveries we should be expecting each week. Vaccine Minister Nadim Zahawi appeared in front of the Science and Technology Select Committee earlier this week, and he was asked about the vaccination data, and he essentially argued that giving too much detail about the specific number of batches or deliveries would one, be a national security risk, um, he also said that a specific amount of deliveries varied week on week. And he also argued that it could put pressure on manufacturers and pharmaceutical companies if other countries know exactly how much vaccine we're getting. But then this was sort of undermined later in the week when the Scottish government published its own vaccine deployment plan and it provided the official estimates for future deliveries until May. Now It was deleted from its website, but eagle Eye journalists spotted it. And using the Scottish figures, you can estimate that there'll be around half a million people that can be vaccinated each day from next week. If that is the case, that means the vaccine rollout will rapidly be accelerated. And actually using those figures, it's pretty realistic that the government should be able to hit its target of vaccinating 15 million people. And so there is optimism that the government's ambitious targets can actually be achieved, providing that supply issues are resolved.
1: Well, finally, Jim, this, of course, is going to lead back to another debate about when and how you ease the lockdown measures. And we saw that the Covid Recovery Group, which is a large caucus of lockdown sceptic Conservative MPs led by Mark Harper, the former chief whip, and Steve Baker, who listeners will remember from the Brexit wars, they've been out saying that, well, if we're going to hit the target, as Jasmine said, then we can open things up again for March the 8th. That's two weeks after some immunity is Delivered for the most vulnerable part of society. That's obviously a very rapid timetable. There's also even been some bizarre hints that if Boris Johnson doesn't unlock the economy fast enough, he might face a leadership challenge. What do you make of all this?
4: The point on the vaccines, if you watch Nadim Zahawi on Newsnight on Thursday night, he was saying that we have 100 million doses ordered from AstraZeneca, we have 40 million doses ordered from Pfizer. They are not very clear about. The speed with which they're arriving and, and how many batches per day, or whatever, but that's 140 million doses. That is enough not only to vaccinate with two jabs the 15 million vulnerable people, but it's enough to do the entire population of the UK, 66 million people, including children. And so, it's not inconceivable that later this year, every single person who wants to will have had the jab. And so, this is reason for great optimism, and that the restrictions will be lifted. Now, what we have with this CRG is that. They want the government to kind of set out a very specific route map. You know, when we get to the X number of vaccinations of this kind of vulnerable person or this number of old people, then we should lift these specific restrictions. And the government is very resistant to that because you can try and model the passage of a disease like this, but it's incredibly hard to do so with any precision. This week, we saw a bit of overreach from the CRG where the Sun newspaper reported that Steve Baker, a senior figure in the CRG and well-known Eurosceptic right-wing MP, he was sort of suggesting that Boris Johnson's leadership could be on the table, this was in private discussions, if they don't manage to sort of get us out of the lockdown pretty quickly. And when this newspaper article came out, Steve rapidly backtracked and put out a tweet saying that he thought the PM was great after all. The truth is that even though they are a fairly substantial group with around 70 MPs, when it's come to lockdown type votes, it rarely goes over about 40 of them you know, it's not that far off the number of MPs you could in theory need to trigger some kind of coup against Johnson, but you're relying on every single one of them doing it and then more MPs joining in. And I I think if that was a kind of threat of a coup, it's evaporated very fast. What is going to be really interesting when we get to the spring is once 15 or 20 million people are vaccinated and once the death rate and the hospitalisation rate has come down, those are the key things. And yes, we all agree that restrictions should be toned down, I think the political debate is going to be, should they be scrapped altogether? You're going to have all sorts of arguments, such as when pub's reopen, Will you be able to go with your friends? Will you have to keep going with your family? Will you only be able to meet your friends outside? You could look at every single aspect of our lives. There's going to be a debate about how things reopen and at what speed.
1: Well, I'll make one prediction, which is I don't think everything will be opened up by Marty Aid, and I don't think Boris Johnson will face a leadership challenge in the near future. Jim and Jasmine, thank you very much. Despite the departure of his infamous aide, Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson still has big plans to reform the civil service. The PM has announced 22,000 officials will move out of central London by 2030 and the FT revealed this week where the departments will be heading. The main announcement is a new Treasury North Campus based near the cities of Newcastle, Leeds or on Teesside where civil servants from multiple ministries will be based. But whether it goes to a northern city or a northern town has sparked something of a bunfight that was almost word for word predicted in the BBC satire, Yes Minister, many years ago. You can't ask senior officers to live permanently in the north. <laughs> <laughs> Why wouldn't you stand for it for one thing. Children's schools. Well, I understand there are schools in the north of England. <laughs> Well, Andy Bands, welcome back to the podcast. Let's begin with this Treasury North proposal. The idea is to take 750 civil servants from the Treasury, the Department for Business, the Department for International Trade, and create this new campus somewhere outside of Whitehall. Do you think it's a good idea?
3: I think it is a very good idea, and the Treasury is the one that everybody wants, because ultimately the Treasury holds the purse strings, lots and lots of policies, as we know over the years have been uh, kiboshed or pushed forward by the Treasury. The North's heyday was really in the last few years when George Osborne was in the Treasury. Although he was in London, he was a Northern MP and he was pushing forward his Northern powerhouse agenda. And we saw big investment in the North in that time and new bodies set up and devolution and mayors That's sort of ground to halt a little bit. So I think the Treasury is a significant player and is the one institution which doesn't have huge amounts of offices. You know, many departments of state do have presence in the regions already, but the Treasury is the one that has very, very little. And when you heard that Yes Minister clip there, it is just beyond belief that
1: this is the debate that is actually going on in government at the moment, because the Johnson government finds itself in this tricky position. Because on the one hand, putting this Treasury North campus in a city, you've got more skills and talent and more ability to be appealing to civil servants. But on the other hand, the political reality would pull you more towards a northern town because those are the places the Conservatives won for the first time in the 2019 election and where they're most likely to get the political rewards for creating this Treasury outpost.
3: At least we've moved on from the north being bleak entirely to actually there are some northern cities that are acceptable for uh, senior civil servants to live in. There is a question here. If you were looking at it as a business you probably would set up in a city with good transport links and a wide catchment area to get the right skills in. On the other hand, there is a great dash of politics here. Ben Houchin, the uh, Tees Valley mayor who sort of led that red wall charge, and he was elected, very keen to get it in the Tees Valley and sees it as a a litmus test of uh, the Tory commitment to these areas that they've won. This may not be the ideal way to do it, to be honest, because the worst thing in the world would be a husk of a hub, which in reality, not many people live near or go to. Well, Jill Rutter, it's great to have you back on the podcast
1: again. As a former civil servant, you'll know that this is not a new idea, that the new Labour government and many others have tried to move officials out of London. Do you think these plans differ in any way?
2: I think it depends. But what we have seen is that while most departments have quite a lot of operations outside London, policymaking does tend to be concentrated in the centre. And that's partly because until we all discovered the wonders of Zoom and Teams and things like that, there was always an assumption that to be an influential policymaker, you needed to be able to drop everything and show up within two minutes in the minister's private office. And while Parliament is still in London, most senior policymakers want to have very ready access to ministers and assume that that equates instantly to physical presence. And that's, I think, been one of the big Barriers and why efforts to date have stalled. I mean, we've seen bits, you know, the big Department for International Development operation up in East Kilbride, always, I think, seen as a bit of a sort of revenge project, maybe by Mrs Thatcher sending them up there. The Manpower Services Commission used to be based in Sheffield, NHS executive in Leeds. But the key thing you need is for this not just to end up with everybody spending their entire life on trains. You really need to move the centre of gravity to the new place. And I think if this ultimately is a decision that's determined Mm. by the politics rather than the sort of underlying logic of the move, then it's likely to have relatively shallow roots and not be sustained through changes of governments. We've already seen a timetable to 2030. The real danger is you move a few token people, then the whole exercise gets cut off at the knees. That happened in my old apartment, DEFRA. They moved one division to Bristol, which was supposed to become a sort of environment hub, but basically moved the wildlife and countryside division and then nobody else ended up going. And the result was people who, liked the lifestyle in Bristol, didn't want to move, had to make their career in that one bit. Other people were faced with a difficult dilemma of did they sacrifice lifestyle for a career-enhancing move back to London? Obviously, the balance you're supposed to have to that is ministers. And certainly when I worked for Ken Clark as Chancellor, he was always telling us, that we had no idea what was going on in the real world and we ought to meet his Nottingham businessman and things like that.
1: And to go back to your other old department, the Treasury as well, do you think that the Treasury does need to have a significant portion of it moved out of Whitehall?
2: I think the question there is, can they really build this big northern economic campus? And there I have to say, I think it's a more realistic prospect if you can build it somewhere which has a lot of business going on, but also very strong links into universities. And actually, you can grow a bit of a sort of local labour force. I'm going to declare an interest here. When I went to the University Careers Office five billion years ago, I said my one criterion was I didn't want to work in London. I ended up joining the civil service fast stream, was posted to the Treasury, and of course, spent my entire career in London. The only other places I've worked are in the States and Madrid, Germany. But the question is, can you offer people a decent career there? Back then, you could assume you only had to move one family member. Now, everybody's a dual career family. Are there going to be opportunities for them? Would you just want civil servants basically having to marry other civil servants? Mm. Look at the ONS. When they moved to Newport, hardly any of the staff went because they found jobs elsewhere. Is that what you want? When they moved the Met Office to Exeter, because basically if you're a meteorologist, you've got to work at the Met Office more or less, they actually were quite a successful relocation. I think you might find... Quite a lot of shedding if you force people to go. So, but also quite a lot of enthusiasm. People who see this as opening the path to a better quality of life
1: indeed, Andy. And this is the key point, isn't it? It's about career progression. The way the Cabinet Office wants to sort of address this is by saying there will be senior positions there. There's an ongoing debate within Whitehall about whether they'll want some permanent secretaries to move. And one example of this is the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, which is coming up more towards your patch. Half the staff there are going to move to Manchester by the middle of the decade, just in time for the next general election, handily enough. And you could see an example of DCMS the permanent secretary being relocated to Manchester.
3: Yes, I think DCMS to Manchester is is one which makes a lot of sense. You've obviously got the BBC moved to Salford. You've got ITV in Media City now. You've got Channel 4 moving a decent chunk of its headquarters operation to Leeds. And let's not forget, you know, we're not talking just about broadcasting, advertising, PR. One of the desires of this move should be to get more people in and out of the civil service, you know, from the business community, from other walks of life, charities, all of which have thriving operations in the north. This is very much about Whitehall chipping off bits to go to the regions for those regions to kind of beg for and also to bid for funding and bid for policies. You know, the other model is to devolve to the regions and set up government of the regions by the regions and empower and hand money over to the mayors or whatever tier of government you wish to do it, you know, a bit like they do with Scotland and Wales. And I think that's what many people in the North would actually like. And I mean, I wrote a story this week about Transport for the North, which is a similar body to Transport for London. It doesn't run the trains, but it has strategic planning powers. and It spent years planning how to improve the rail and road and freight systems across the North of England. And this week was told its budget is going to be cut, its core budget by 40%, suddenly being told with a stroke of a permanent secretary's pen, sorry, guys, you know, we're clipping your wings and you're going to be doing less in the future.
1: And Joe, this really does come to the tension you always get in these situations that governments love to talk up devolution and bring government closer to the people. But then the sort of Whitehall orthodoxy always tends to strike back. And I think you really saw this during the early days of coronavirus when you had the mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, and the mayor of the Greater Liverpool area, Steve Rotherham, who were in negotiation, essentially with Boris Johnson, about what restrictions and what business support package they should have. And I began to hear murmurings from side-down of saying, oh, well, maybe we don't want to devolve as much because it actually makes life more difficult in the end.
2: Interesting point. I mean, just to build on what Andy was saying, dispersion and devolution, dispersion is what you call all this civil service relocation, are not the same thing. You know, just having people making centralised decisions in a different place is very different to actually transferring the power out. I think what ministers feel is that people are all up for the theory of devolution But one of the things that does frustrate them on various areas is that ultimately, if something is going wrong somewhere, somebody wants to hold a minister in Westminster to account. I think in a sense, that's the success, if you like, of Scottish and Welsh devolution, that people increasingly hold those governments to account. So I think, can you devolve both power, money, because it would take a lot more money, and real accountability? And can you have a system that does that? So I think it's a really interesting question about how do you sort of underpin a sustainable system of proper local regional government with money attached? And we've seen that the public, you know, so far hasn't gone overboard about the creation of all these new jobs. It's a really interesting question about whether devolution, the experience of Andy Burnham emerging, Andy Street and others becoming spokespeople for their areas has actually changed the public view. Remember when people were asked did they want elected mayors in those referendums before George Osborne decided to impose them? Most areas said no thanks because they don't particularly like yet more layers of politicians. So I think we're a little bit of a way off there.
1: Finally, briefly, Andy, I just want to ask you about the impact of the pandemic on this because obviously so much of the civil service has been working from home during the last year. And the people that I've spoken to in Whitehall say, well, in fact, this makes the argument for moving even more civil servants out of Whitehall. And a group of Northern Tory MPs have called this week for 50,000 civil servants
3: to be moved to the regions. A lot depends on Parliament, doesn't it? If they continue to have remote sessions and voting, if then you don't have to have ministers, you know, within five minutes of the House whenever possible. You can have cabinet meetings online and so on. But there's a lot of people that would like to revert back to the old way of doing things, and, and especially in politics where information is uh, is king, you know, and, and what can be said in person is perhaps uh, more frank and fair than could be said online, you know, it might be being recorded. So I I suspect that the cultural change is still going to be very, very hard one to make. And the argument is there, but I'll believe it when I see it. Well, Andy and
1: Joe, thank you very much for joining us again. And that's it for this week's episode of Paint Politics. We've been Paint Politics for six months now. So if you like the podcast, then please do subscribe. You can find us in all the usual places on Apple, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can leave us your feedback on what you think about it. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Delamare. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening.
5: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day
0: returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. yahoofinance.com.